tonight. BJ Manon of the Heritage Foundation joins us to discuss universal basic income. I'm Roaming Millennial, and you're watching Uncensored. Hi, BJ. Thank you so much for coming on. It's great to speak with you. Thanks for having me on, Lauren. It's no problem. So you're a researcher with Heritage Foundation and you specialize, from what I take it, in domestic policy issues. And your recent piece is about, I think, the hottest topic when it comes to public policy <laughs> implementations, and that's universal basic income, something that's been talked about by people like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. For, for people who haven't maybe been in the loop and who haven't heard of that term before, would you mind giving us a little bit of a rundown? on what exactly it means. Sure, so thanks for having me on. Uh, so universal basic income is essentially a no strings attached cash payment that would go to all citizens regardless of need. And as you mentioned, um, its proponents like range from Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk to even some libertarians like scholar Charles Murray. And some cities in the United States are testing it out. Uh, Stockton, California, for example, is trying something out in early 2019 and Chicago is setting up a task force and trying to be the largest city to do this. Um, but it, it is a hot idea right now, but the thing is it's been tried before and it did not have good results. And I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Mm -hmm, right, because I think in your piece mentions this as, as hot of an issue as it is right now, we have all this, this, these new plans being announced, it's not exactly a new concept and actually just in Ontario, kind of my neighbor right now, they recently tried a program that was originally meant to last for three years and the idea was, yeah, it's no strings attached money, um, but they ended up ending it early after just a year because they found that I think the exact way that they put it is that it didn't incentivize people to become productive, self-sustaining members of the economy. And I think that's that's what a lot of people are concerned about. But the proponents who advocate for this, they they say that it'll give people, I guess, more time to search for better jobs, more times to more time to innovate, more time to pursue things like education, invest in their own future. Um, are are there benefits to this that the the people are talking about, which you would say might be accurate? Well, certainly, if people were substituting um, work for productive activity, that would be something that we could look upon. But this experiment, so my article focused on this big experiment from the 1970s. It was called the negative income tax experiment. Now, what is a negative income tax? It is essentially similar to a UBI, a universal basic income, and that it provides cash payments to guarantee a minimum income. So very close to universal basic income. And what that showed is that people reduced their work hours in response. And there is some data that people, um, especially younger workers, millennials, um, pursued education, but there was no evidence from the experiment that it actually increased their earnings. And there was certainly no evidence from the experiment that it led people to get better jobs. In fact, um, there were a lot of men who there's and there's strong evidence of this from the experiment who dropped out of the labor force altogether, which is not good and that's it's not what we want. If there's a program that discourages work, um, we think that's that's counterproductive and ultimately harmful uh, to people seeking a better life. 
Mm -hmm. And I think I think whenever we're talking about an economic policy, especially anything to do with welfare or trying to get people back into the job market, it's so important to look at data. And in this case, we actually do have data about this specific issue. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the people what I've heard so often from the people who advocate for this kind of thing is that it's going to be necessary um, because even if people don't end up entering the job force at the same rate, it's there's a possibility that because of things like automation and it's usually in reference to automation that I hear this, there just may not be those jobs in the future for people who are perhaps more low skilled in labor force to look for. So do you think that's a reasonable concern that they have? Are we approaching this time, this almost jobs Armageddon where there's just going to be no work? So we're going to have these people who aren't going to be able to provide for themselves and we're going to need to figure out what to do with them? Or, or, or do you think there's going to be something different going forward that we'll, we will see manifest? Well, technological change is certainly something that is an issue now, and, and people are exploring different ways. So UBI, universal basic income, is a well-intentioned policy to get at potentially some of those failings um, of the system moving forward. But technological change has occurred over and over again, and there have been concerns that people would we'd have this kind of dystopian society where there's one class of people who are working and another class of people uh, who are just not able to work. And we think even though the universal basic income is well-intentioned, it, it does have a proven track record of discouraging work. And moving forward, we should be trying at all costs, and especially now when we have full employment in the economy, record low unemployment, people working, we should be emphasizing getting people back into the labor force because what we know is that Americans understand the dignity of work mm -hmm. and the pride that it gets, that you get from earning a living. And that's something that's good for human happiness and well-being. So if we are marching down this path where we're expecting a whole swath of people not to work, we're, we're going to be doing long-term damage to the human spirit. Um, and that's, that's where this conversation is really shaping up in the long term. Right. And what I find so interesting about this whole conversation as someone who's just, you know, been reading a lot of articles for and against it is that, you know, so often when it comes to something like automation, people talk about the 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 amount of people who are going to be put out of jobs because of things like that. Um, what I find is so mm -hmm. interesting is that when you look at the countries that have embraced automation because of a developed and robust economy, they're they're typically much much doing much much better when it comes to things like unemployment than the countries that haven't industrialized as much. Um, so mm -hmm. it's, uh, that's always amused me when people use that as an excuse to say like yeah we're going to have this whole jobless population. But you know I think we we can both acknowledge that it at the very least highlights the fact that the current system uh, as we have it, the, the incentives we do and don't offer when it comes to getting people from a situation where they're reliant on something like welfare to being back and producing, that there, there's problems right now. And so mm -hmm. I, I was very, very interested in your article when you mentioned that Charles Murray, who is, like you said, a more libertarian, supported this because, you know, I'm I identify as conservatarian, and so when mm -hmm. you know, I first heard about UBI, the idea of just, you know, essentially taking money from everyone and then redistributing it, that is probably one of the most unlibertarian things I can think of but looking into a little bit more I heard about how they see it as I guess the lesser of two evils when it comes to the current system which is obviously very bureaucratic there's a lot of bloating there there's a lot of inefficiency and corruption 
Um, as someone who studies domestic policies, are there any solutions on the table right now that you see as, I guess, potentially more beneficial than UBI in addressing the same problem of unemployment and of poverty? Sure. Well, we do want to be supporting work whenever we can. And again, while UBI is well-intentioned, universal basic income is well-intentioned, it does discourage work. And and if we're thinking about this from just a human well-being standpoint, we want to be encouraging that at all costs. Um, and what we have on the table is so when the negative income tax experiment results came out and they showed it discouraged work, the conversation moved away from basic income proposals and towards more work-based reforms, mm -hmm. such as the earned income tax credit, which is essentially a policy that provides a wage subsidy to people who are earning, I guess, lower incomes. Um, and in and, and that way, it rewards work and it promotes positive, productive behavior, um, which is ultimately what we want. So any policy such as that should be looked at seriously and reformed. So the earned income tax credit right now, uh, we do think it should be expanded at the Heritage Foundation, but we also think that um, it can be reformed to reduce fraud. There a lot. There's a high error rate in um, improper and fraudulent payments, and also um, penalties to getting married. So mm -hmm. people are often better off receiving it as individual earners rather than a married couple. And we think those are counterproductive reforms. And if we are serious about reducing poverty, uh, we should take, you know, a really close look at that. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes to the whole issue of entitlement, something that was very, very popular in terms of a talking point in maybe 2008 is the whole idea of the fact that there's so much debt, right? The the deficit mm -hmm. is, is huge, so is the debt. And when we're looking at something like the proposed UBI or even what we're looking at currently in, in the welfare system, I know at least for Ontario, the pilot program ran with 4,000 families and it cost $50 million per year. That is a huge, huge cost, a huge burden on the economy. Um, is is there a way that we can start to look at perhaps maybe lessening these these payments that, that, that we're doing in terms of the people who aren't currently working? Or is that being insensitive and uncompassionate towards people who do need help right now? Because I feel like any time these measures are talked about, um, you know, ways to incentivize work, there, there is the fear, especially among people who, are, I guess, are more left-leaning, that the people who either are incapable of finding work or who simply can't work are going to be left behind because of things like budget cuts. Is there, is there any sort of compromise that you think can be had between those two positions? Well, definitely. I mean, we spend in this country over $1.1 trillion on aid to the poor. And we don't, in our welfare programs, uh, and this is not even including Social Security and Medicare, we don't expect elderly folks, people who are physically or mentally disabled, people in other certain groups of people like people with young children to to work. And, and that's something that that is reasonable. Mm -hmm. And for people who are capable of work, we I think it's pretty it's a broad consensus that people who are working full time should be able to meet the basic needs of their family. And government policy should support that. It should support work. That's why like programs like the Earned Income Tax Credit are very broadly supported 
um, not by just conservatives, but also people on the other side of the aisle. It's 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 something that rewards, you know, productive activity and and rewards the human spirit, and ultimately, it's a better policy. So if we're looking for solutions, that is one way to start. Another one is, you know, work requirements for people who are capable of work to help mm-hmm. them into the labor force, which is just so important now, when we have such low unemployment and many jobs, job openings available than the number of people seeking jobs and and across the country. So those those are just basic reforms that can be made to really, you know, help people get a job. Because at the end of the day, what helps the poor the most is helping them get a job. Mm-hmm. That is so true, and especially I think in the United States, I was actually recently looking up some some statistics when it came to I think it was specifically the minimum wage debate, whether to raise that or lower that, and uh, I was actually sort of relieved to find um, that if you are working full time, and you know assuming that you are you have a job that pays at least the minimum wage, i.e. not working at the table, but if you are working full-time, the odds of being in poverty in the United States are extremely, extremely low, which, I mean, to me, you often hear in the media, they're, they're talking about, like, the working poor, the people who, no matter how much they're working, they still simply can't make that living wage, and I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but by the numbers, that is not the reality that people who are fully employed have. Um, and I guess like to pivot a little bit, if I can just get your take on on something like the minimum wage really quick, that's that's another issue where people, um, you know, when we talk about making sure that people are able to provide for themselves may often be thrown around with something like UBI. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying mm-hmm. that if you support one, you probably support the other, but there is a good chance. Um, you know, sure. someone from the Heritage Foundation, you study these issues. Do, do you think something like raising the minimum wage would be part of a, of a plan to make sure, like you said, that people who are working are able to provide for themselves, who have families, are able to provide for their children? So that's a great question. Um, and ultimately, no, I uh, don't think that would be uh, beneficial because while some people would maybe be getting higher wages from that, there will also be people who will, will not be working at all because, you know, the employers will be forced to cut back in terms of you know who they're hiring or how many employees they keep on and like the the argument for the minimum wage comes kind of from the the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party who says that employers they aren't um, giving their employees enough and they're actively aiding abetting their their suffering but that's that's precisely the wrong way of looking at it in in my view like these businesses are providing work for, for folks who, who may not have a job in the absence of these businesses. And what should be the focus is that we as a society have a responsibility to help the working poor provide for their family. That responsibility doesn't just solely rest with employers. To, to paint employers like Amazon or Walmart as the, boogie, as the boogeyman is the, is, is the wrong way to look at this issue. It should be you know, looking at something like the earned income tax credit where, you know, if, if employers have low incomes, it's it's the job and, and taxpayers, Americans are fair, the taxpayers mm-hmm. would want to provide that, you know, that subsidy so that they're able to make, make meet, the, 
make their basic needs meet. And ultimately, if there is a minimum wage, there's some people who are going to really uh, feel the pain of, of that policy. Mm -hmm. So true. And I think uh, as we've seen with things like the recent tax reforms and the economy doing so well, because there is mm -hmm. now actually competition among the job markets on the side of employers looking for people to be able to fill the jobs they have. We've actually seen companies uh, like Amazon, like Walmart, raise their wages, not because mm -hmm. they're being forced to, but because they're just trying to be competitive so people will come to their job and to me that is just the I guess the best of both worlds right we're able to have people in those higher paying jobs but we're also having companies that are that are benefiting from you know fewer regulations and they're able to actually meet those needs while still being profitable themselves and being able to continue carrying on but thank you so much for coming and sharing your insights with us if people want to be able to sure. follow your work or the Heritage Foundation in general what you guys are up to where can they go? Um, well, they can follow me on Twitter. I'm always looking for new Twitter followers uh, at uh, V-I-J-A-Y-K-M-E-N. Um, or you can visit, visit uh, heritage.org. It's uh, right behind me. Um, tons of great research um, out there, and that's constantly being done. All right, great. And again, thank you so much. And thank you for everything that you guys overdo, you guys over there do. I use a lot of your studies when I'm doing research myself, so I really <laughs> appreciate it. That's good to hear, and thanks for what you do, too.